0: Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies.
1: Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast now on video. Don't worry if you've been listening to the audio, keep doing it, it's fine. But if you want to check out the video, Enjoy. On this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I get to catch up with Mr. Regulatory, David Pudwill, and we talk about IDE, Investigational Device Exemption. So get into a lot of details on this, but it's really good stuff, especially if you're considering or want to know more about whether or not an IDE is going to be necessary or the type of path that, that makes sense for your product. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast hello and welcome to the global medical device podcast yes that's right on video that's a new edition folks listening to the audio version you know you're still going to be able to catch that wherever you're listening to the podcast but uh be sure to check out the video we're putting it out and uh sort of the usual suspects as well but joining me today on the global medical device podcast is a recurring a familiar voice mr regulatory david pudwell david welcome
0: hey thanks for having me
1: uh, I've do, known this and I've hopefully people have already picked up that at least we have the same uh, hairstylist but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, folks go to go to YouTube uh, type in mr. regulatory David's got a ton of content that's that's there on a, a lot of things FDA related and today we're going to dive into one of those conversations we're going to talk about IDE so I guess before we get too deep, uh, David, it might be a good place to start. What is IDE? Some folks may know, but let's don't yeah. make an assumption here.
0: Yeah, it's uh, one of those FDA acronyms. Oh, uh, wait, that's another one. Uh, you know, it's like, <laughs> So uh, the US Food and Drug Administration terms uh, an, an investigational device exemption as an IDE. Usually this is, this is a clinical study that you need to get in front of FDA, and that's the submission mechanism that FDA has put in place for you to go ahead and submit that information and for them to approve or disapprove your, um, your, your clinical study.
1: Okay. And folks, there are a ton of resources and links and, and we'll share some of those and the text and the show notes that accompany this, but a lot of information out there, but I guess, you know, maybe a good place or next place to go is kind of talk about when should I be considering an IDE. And I know there are some situations where I think it's more of thou shalt do IDE and other cases where, well, maybe I'd want to. So, you know, maybe let's expand upon that a little bit. When is it required? When is it nice to have? And those sorts of things. I I guess if you don't mind,
0: I'd I'd back up a little bit and and sort of say it's helpful if you're, if you're planning on conducting a clinical study, to just think again, as, as we've talked about in some previous podcasts, about the overall landscape and sort of where you're trying to get to, what is your end goal? And FDA has a couple different programs that you can avail yourself of around early feasibility studies, If, if, if that's, and we'll talk about that maybe a little bit later here as well in terms of what that might look like. But you know, if you're looking to do breakthrough kinds of uh, products or if you're looking to improve the safety of existing products... FDA has a couple different programs that you should think about around uh, what they call uh, EFS, that's Early Feasibility Breakthrough Device Designation, which gives you a couple perks. And everybody wants to be breakthrough, but not everybody's breakthrough. Right. And then what they call the Safer Technologies Program or STEP. Yeah. So those are just, just to start with. As you think about the overall plan to, to move forward in, in, in terms of development and what you're trying to achieve, check those programs out. You're probably already doing that. But check those out and see if that's applicable. And then in terms of the actual IDE study itself, FDA has put together a bunch of really great links for you on their CDRH Learn uh, landing page. And there's uh, just, just countless uh, numbers of presentations and resources. Some stuff back uh, in, in 2014, there, there, there were a number of presentations and, and things that FDA put out that are really quite useful. Right. And one slide in particular in there, and FDA presents it a couple times in their ba- uh, IDE basics uh, presentation. You can watch the video. You can also go look at the um, you know the slideshow uh, slides in a PDF format or, or, or something. And on page 12 there, there's this great uh, little graphic. And it, it talks about, or, or it sort of maps out if you've got a device study that's either exempt or not exempt, and then what sort of falls into that not exempt category in terms of significant risk or, or non-significant risk. So first and foremost, there are a lot of uh, clinical studies that are just exempt from, from IDE uh, regulations.
1: And, and maybe elaborate a little bit, you know, when you say exempt, I mean, yeah, not to assume that, that these terms are entirely clear to everyone. I, what does that mean, exempt? Yeah, so that that means you're
0: not going to have to submit an IDE to FDA for that. And there there are even some non-exempt studies where you may or may not have to submit an IDE, but under the exempt, you're going to be exempt from at least the the, the FDA requirements around this, depending on the context that that, that you're doing some of this. You might still need to submit something to to, to an IRB, but in terms of exempt studies, this is going to be commercial devices used according to their labeling that probably wouldn't need, or I wouldn't expect you to have an IRB approval for anything like that where the device is already on the market uh, approved for that particular uh, you know, type of use. A lot of diagnostic devices, because there's not a safety, uh, you know, a patient safety consideration depending on how you're using it and if you're just evaluating the product against standard of care versus actually trying to inform uh, um, the, uh, the, the, the clinical judgment and decision making, uh, a testing of uh, consumer preference or, or a modification uh, when determining s- uh, a safety and effectiveness and not putting subjects at risk. Again, same kind of thing for, for the diagnostics. Some of these as well, uh, um, th- there, there are device types that fall into some of these, uh, th- these categories as well. You'll find certain wound care uh, products, for instance, fall into this exempt uh, category in terms of, or, or they fall into. I shouldn't say exempt. They, they, they're going to be in the non-significant uh, risk category and and not require an ID. But but for exempt, you've got you know veterinary devices, uh, custom uh, devices, and, and and a couple other categories as well that are let let's say practice of medicine. So you may not be on label for this particular use, but if if a clinician is using it under practice of medicine, not in a study per se. That's also going to be uh, acceptable. Not not require an IDE study, or if it's basic physiological research, and FDA goes into a little bit of detail there. So that that's the exempt category. All of those are going to not require an IDE, and then we get into the not exempt category, and this is where let's say wound care devices are going to fall in into the not exempt but not significant risk for certain types of um, for certain types of products. And FDA has laid that out. Um, and those are going to generally require IRB engagement, but not require an IDE. And even for the for the exempt and non-exempt, this doesn't tell you anything about whether you need an IRB in, engagement, but it does tell you clearly for anything that's exempt, you don't need FDA's engagement. Once you get into the non-significant risk, it's going to be a determination by an IRB about it being not significant risk. And you definitely have an IRB involved in, in those sorts of not exempt uh, uh, studies. Or generally, you, you you would, and then because um, uh, because they're making that risk determination, and then you have what are considered significant risk uh, uh, studies, and the initial determination on that is going to be made by the uh, investigation sponsor, and that might be a a physician, it might be a company, and that initial determination about where you fall into the risk categorization is actually made by by you if if, if you're running the study. And then depending on, on what that looks like and whether you need to engage in IRB to, to, to run that, they'll, they'll then sense check that, that determination about, let's say, significant risk versus not significant risk. And if they disagree, then they might ask you to submit something to FDA to confirm. And you can actually get a, a Q submission into FDA to get FDA's determination
1: uh,
0: <coughs> uh, you know, on, on, on that.
1: Okay. Uh, and a couple of reactions. So... Exempt, not exempt. Um, I guess clarification. this should not be confused with device classification. Uh, nope. The same terms may be used for device classification, but these are are not necessarily yep. connected to that, correct.
0: So yeah, so you may require a 510k submission for a product, so it's not exempt from a 510k but it could still be exempt from, let's say, an okay. investigational device exemption. So, yeah, that's a very good, that's a very good <laughs> clarification. Just because you're um, – and, 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 well, uh, it, if you're exempt from, let's say, 510K, probably you're going to find yourself in a category where you could get the device on the market without, clinical, without a clinical study. So it's, it's – it, not to say that it's all – not to say that all 510K-exempt devices would be exempt from IDE requirements, but you're more likely to find a path to be exempt from IDE, sort of investigational device exemption requirements, if you have a 510k exempt product. But if you have a, if you require a 510k, you're not 510k exempt, you still might be exempt for certain device uh, categories from the IDE requirements.
1: Okay, that makes sense. And I I guess one follow up on that. So if I have, um, well, I guess it's whether or not, if I have a device that's on the market, and regardless of it if it's class one, five ten k exam or five ten k clearance, et cetera, there's a potential that that I can still do an exempt uh, type of clinical study. Uh, if I start to explore other indications for use, um, that might be part of that decision tree that makes it not exempt. So you know, it, there is sort of a decision tree that one would follow, uh, if I'm understanding correctly.
0: Yeah. And and if you're looking at de novo and PMA products, I mean, the likelihood is that you're not exempt. And the likelihood is that you fall into significant risk just because of the device classifications and how you'd probably be looking to study the product. But it's going to vary based on what it is that you're studying, you know, how it is that you're looking at it. And um, you you, you could lay out scenarios where even high risk devices could fall into a a not significant risk you know kind of a kind of a study and and this is again where you look at um, you know certain diagnostic devices or let's say you, you were testing consumer preference of mm-hmm. a couple different available options and you've already got your you know your your, your your clearances you've got a high risk device but you have a you know potentially exempt. Uh, sure. Uh, study
1: sure and, and <clears throat> i guess that's another follow-up question i wanted to explore a little bit significant risk non-significant risk um i believe this is still a thing i know once upon a time uh, fda ha- had a or probably has a pretty good guidance document about significant risk not significant risk i assume that's still a thing to these days right
0: yeah, so so FDA, FDA has a lot of content out there on significant risk versus non-significant risk, also a, a, a lot of detail on um, uh, just within the context of uh, submissions, and this is useful for you to think about as you're headed towards, presumably, if you're going to do a clinical study, you're also looking to get a device marketed, this benefit-risk uh, determination and sort of how to think about risk in the context of the overall process to get the device onto the market.
1: Yeah. I wanted to add that because um, I, I don't want people to be confused. Yes, you as as device, um, developer, manufacturer, whatever the case may be, uh, have um, some um, part of the decision-making process as far yeah. as significant, not significant risk. But it's not like you just going to say, oh, uh, my device is not significant risk. There is well, guidance. You, there, there's guidance. You
0: could say that FDA may disagree with you, <laughs> and uh, so so it's one of those is one of those situations where yes, you do have some information that will guide your uh, decision making around what falls into significant risk, what doesn't. FDA's also laid out a, a a couple examples of of what's going to fall into, let's say, significant um, significant risk. So for instance. Uh, uh, products that are in implant or used uh, in supporting or sustaining human life or uh, of substantial importance in diagnosing, curing, mitigating, or treating disease or preventing impairment of human health or otherwise poses a risk. So this is just sort of some broad brush uh, swaths of what would constitute probably a significant risk kind of a um, uh, kind of a device. Yeah. And the IRB in, in these kinds of cases you're generally going to be engaging with, you know, with an IRB would be my my, my expectation, or you've already conducted a clinical study and, and you've already got a device on the market for that kind of a significant risk category product such that you know the sort of the gradations of what's going to require a study and and, and what wouldn't. And FDA is going to be the final arbiter if there are any disputes you don't really want to be in a position of, of you know, being at odds with FDA. And, and FDA does have a mechanism where you can submit a, a Q-sub to them. It's the kind of thing, though, where a, a lot of these should be somewhat cut and dried. And um, sometimes even for some things that should be straightforward, NIRB will send a, a sponsor to FDA. And, you know, so I, I was involved in looking at some of these SR, NSR determinations, Usually, uh, it, it's a it's a medical doctor in that uh, subject you know area of expertise that's that's going to actually be looking at it, making a determ- determination at FDA, uh, and, and then you've got people who who were doing what I was doing, maybe helping to drive some of the administrative, you know, documentation around that and 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 getting a determination back to uh, a study sponsor. The um, you know occasionally you, you'd see some you know some significant risk or non significant risk uh, questions come to FDA that were relatively straightforward. No, it's it, FDA is going to make the cut. It's not significant risk. And sometimes you just have a very conservative IRB, but, um, you know, it's, FDA will make those, those decisions, both for a device being a significant risk versus, you know, or not being a significant risk based on the objective evidence that you present to them. So yeah. the best, the, 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 the best advice I would, I would suggest if you're going down that path, is to make sure that you provide sufficient information to to justify why, if you believe it's a not significant risk uh, a study, why, why that is and, and what your justification is and, and provide as much context around that as you can because that will really help FDA then, then then make that determination. And if you can get the IRB to agree with you up front, yeah. uh, you, you can head that whole situation off. Yeah, uh, Because, would... yeah. you know, there's always a chance that FDA is going to disagree with you if, if you <laughs> think it's not significant risk and... FDA is going to lean in general, you know, towards a, a slightly more conservative uh, judgment on gray area issues.
1: Yeah. I mean, QSub. Q-sub, uh, I want folks to also remember Q-sub mm-hmm. and pre-submission. Those are synonymous That's, with one yeah. another. If you go to FDA with a Q-sub or pre-submission and, and say, Hey, do I need an IDE clinical uh, investigation for this? If you ask that question, um, Well, the answer is probably
0: yes. It's probably
1: yes. (laughs) (laughs) So, David's point. Always, (laughs) David's point. Do your homework. You know, do the due diligence ahead of time. Engage an IRB, and and you know, come even after you do the due diligence, engage the IRB. You know, go through the the SR NSR sort of decision tree and, and so on and so forth, there's a, a decent chance, it still might be ambiguous, then that's yeah. the opportunity to to come to FDA. But don't just say, hey, FDA, do I need an IDE? Because to your point, they're probably gonna say yes.
0: Well, and, I, and I've seen this kind of thing as well with in, in other areas primarily. I think for SR, NSR, it's gonna be a little bit more objective, but there's still still some level of subjectivity here. But definitely in some other areas where FDA guidance is pretty clear You can go to FDA and and, and ask them the question. And usually if you're asking them, that indicates to FDA that you believe there might be some ambiguity. And, you know, so I I know there are some um, situations within companies where your commercial team wants a clarity from FDA about something and they're not trusting the regulatory team or something like that. As much as you can do to try to head that situation off, I mean, please, please do. Uh, wherever possible, please trust your regulatory people to make make good judgments about some of this stuff. Because if you push the regulatory people to ask FDA a question that should be clear cut, FDA is going to look at it and say, why are they asking? There must be something here we've, we're missing. Is there any reason we might think that we should give them the answer they're not looking for? And uh, you, you just put yourself in a situation where at sometimes, uh, you know, or sometimes the answer should be clear cut uh, and it should be, let's say that FDA doesn't need to be involved, but if you ask FDA whether they would like to be involved, they might tell you yes. Yeah. So just be prepared for that and just, yeah, don't don't be asking questions that you know the answer to if you can clearly document that.
1: For sure. Folks, I want to remind you, I'm talking to the Mr. Regulatory, David Pudwell, uh, you can learn a ton more about him. Uh, and a couple of places, you can go to MrRegulatory.com, MR Regulatory, all one word, no hyphens, dot com. Uh, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning, you can also go to the Mr. Regulatory YouTube channel. Uh, quite a few different uh, episodes and videos on a lot of things. Like, you know, some of it's really nuanced type of topics, but it's it's that's that stuff that you know you don't deal with every day and you need somebody that that has the expertise and knowledge, and, and certainly Mr. Regulatory has that. Also, while I'm taking this brief pause to remind you that Greenlight Guru medical device success platform is out there, and it is helping companies all over the world bring devices to market and keep them there. You know, we built this platform for the medical device industry. It's been designed by actual medical device professionals, so go check it out, www.greenlight.guru. And One other exciting announcement that that we just launched, we have this thing called Greenlight Guru Academy. What is this? Well, we've built out uh, this education platform. Uh, We're gonna be frequently adding some different courses and learning paths uh, to teach you uh, more about things like design controls and risk management and regulatory submissions and so on and so forth. So it's out there, it's available, uh, consume it, uh, enjoy it. And be on the lookout for exciting new courses coming soon in the Greenlight Guru Academy. All right, and I, I am really
0: happy to hear about uh, uh, yeah. more training opportunities and things uh, you know available because that's it's really been one of the reasons that I started doing any of these videos to start with is just the um, you know the, the the quality of some of the information that's out there. FDA's yes. got some stuff we've talked about this in this in this area in particular. There's a lot of volume of information you can go through it. I don't know that FDA has ever really condensed it well. Um, not that we're condensing it pr- particularly well in this conversation either. But uh, you know, at some point, uh, you know, uh, you know, probably, uh, you know, try to put together some slides that better condense. Okay, here's the here here's the here's the map because FDA's information is from let's say 2014, and uh, yeah. maybe they'll get around to doing it. But uh, I, I think at the moment they're busy with a bunch of COVID uh, you know, issues. And, uh, speaking of which there are some COVID considerations as well for investigational device exemptions and, and, and clinical studies. And I have a couple videos on, on some of those, um, okay. topics. We'll,
1: but, we'll uh, make sure to get those <laughs> links out there, but, but I mean, that's an interesting topic, to, um, uh, maybe in and of itself, but maybe we'll dive into it a little bit, uh, now, but, you know, I know, um, when COVID first, you know, came to be and you know the world kind of shut down so to speak there was an impact on the med device industry Mm -hmm. and uh, there for a bit and specifically in the area of like IDEs and clinical investigations both you know here and abroad um, what what are these COVID IVD, or I'm sorry COVID IDE see I'm getting all the acronyms messed (laughs) up David but what, what are these programs that that you alluded to?
0: Yeah, so FDA has put out some some guidances on statistical considerations, COVID specific issues that you're going to run into. You've now got some confounding factors due to having you know a COVID population. A lot of this was maybe a bigger impact very early on in the pandemic for ongoing studies or for people trying to start studies and figure out how to adequately. Control them. I, there, there's some other considerations as well in terms of remote monitoring yeah, of of true. studies and you know different ways that you can actually collect data in the current environment where uh, we're trying to limit the number of in-person interactions that that people have in terms of the number of of human contacts that you know that are going to put them at slightly higher risk for you know maybe getting um, you know getting COVID uh, you know simply you know simply because the number of people who are coming through their house or who are meeting with them in a, you know, in a clinical setting. And so trying to reduce that impact as well. And, and FDA has been very uh, sensitive uh, to that. And it is just uh, an ocean of information they put out around COVID and, yeah. and clinical studies and all this as well.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think that's a really good point. I mean, I, I think um this may be a prediction, but um, I think our world, uh, med device world is, in some aspects, probably going to be forever changed. And I think in some cases it's for the better. Like you mentioned the remote monitoring, you know, if you go to more the, the, like the uh, inspection and audits and things like that, I I think there will be a a virtual component to some of these activities. And, you know, it's like, you know, you and I are chatting over video. I remember being a kid and uh, the the idea of talking to somebody live over video. I mean, that, that was reserved for star Wars Mm -hmm. and star Trek. You would have never imagined doing that in real life. Um, so i think there's a lot of benefit to some of those types of things but you know i guess getting back to specific into the ide realm maybe we'll explore a little bit so like 510k do i have to have clinical data for my 510k yes or no
0: maybe Maybe.
1: (laughs) it depends that's the (laughs) the, sorry you know it'd be nice it was clear cut when yes Uh, when no uh when yes when no
0: it's it's primarily going to be linked to the risk of the product. So for instance, uh, you know, for certain types of devices, especially if you're going into the home. So let's say one area that I'm familiar with is hemodialysis. So for those kinds of products, if you're in the clinic, FDA will accept bench testing. You might have to do human factors studies, and it's going to be a whole lot of information and testing, and um, you might have to be engaging you know nurses and and patients, but not in sort of a formal clinical study to get a product like that into uh, into the clinic. Uh, but if you're trying to put a, a device like that in the home, then FDA's expectation is that you run a, a small clinical study. For other types of products as well. So let's say uh, certain types of stents uh, are, are going to require them for for vascular stents, uh, fairly large studies for uh, certain types of um, uh, pacing and defibrillating. Uh, sure. uh, products and uh, you know, so uh, you know, one product, uh, you know, and, and panel that I was involved in was for leadless pacemakers, and uh, FDA ended up putting up, putting those products uh, on, on the market after um, a gathering a uh, you know whole lot of information on their safety and and, and efficacy. So uh, specifically, if it's a new uh, sort of category of device or a significant uh, a departure from the existing technology, you're probably going to need Uh, clinical information. Now, you know, for some of these is going to fall into, let's say, PMA category. So for say, you know, the, the electrophysiology products, that's going to be your PMA. You're more likely to need clinical for these high risk type products, but even for hemodialysis systems, these aren't PMA products. These are 510k products, but they're still relatively high risk. You're, you know, direct access to the to, you know, the, uh, to the vascular system and, you know, significant things can go wrong in some of these kinds of treatments. So you have things like that, that are high risk, you know, usually electromechanical, you know, products, you, you might have other, you know, other kinds of, uh, you know, high risk 510k, uh, you know, type devices as well, where just historically we've, we've dealt with these kinds of products under a, um, uh, uh you know, under a 510k paradigm.
1: hmm all right. So next uh, question: All PMA devices require an IDE. True or false? False. Yeah.
0: Um, so uh, there's actually some interesting. Uh, I, I, I won't go um, too deep into it, but especially for for products, I believe uh, with other PMAs on the market already as of let's say 2000. I, I might be getting the date uh, the date a little off here, but FDA can actually leverage other companies' clinical data to put your device on the market. Um, Now, some of that, uh, you know, is going to require some, you know, strong comparator to, you know, that that uh, let's say predicate PMA. It's not quite the right way to frame it, but
1: um,
0: if if you're making a a sort, let's call it a generic PMA product, uh, sort of think about it like the drug. You know avenues um fDA could leverage existing clinical data uh, for devices after a certain cutoff date and that's it, it's it's it prescribed in some fDA guidance actually on this uh they can leverage existing clinical data so even if you would expect clinical data to be required for that type of product, if sufficient information exists um, and fDAs use some language around fourth of a kind and stuff like this uh, then you might not need clinical even even for a PMA type product It's going to be a narrower set of cases than, than where you need it but
1: yeah okay um, next um, I guess question for you so um, let me make sure I phrase the question so I have a 510k uh, device or device that's going to follow a 510k path do not need the clinical data to support my submission but I want it. Uh, for more market acceptance, you know, investors, whatever the case may be, yep, um, you might need it for reimbursement. Reimbursement. So there, so there's other scenarios that even though it may not be required, I'm, i still might have to do an IDE if I haven't got cleared.
0: Well, you might need to do a clinical study, but if, if, if you, if you don't require the IDE, usually you're going to need to do an IDE if you're going to leverage that clinical information for a marketing submission. Okay. So that's that's really what's going to drive your your need. Uh, you know, aside from, let's say, significant risk, uh, safety, you know, patient safety considerations, it's going to be, if you're going to be using that data to support a marketing submission, you, you probably want to be collecting that under an investigational device exemption.
1: Okay. That Uh, makes certain, uh, a a ton of sense. So, um, I figured we could kind of wrap up today and just give uh, folks a little bit of, um, I guess, high level what goes into an IDE submission. It is a type of regulatory submission, and folks, I want to direct you to 21 CFR uh, Part 812. I believe covers all investigational uh, device exemption criteria. Uh, so go check that out. But but from a high level, David, you know what goes into an IDE submission?
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be Part 812. Twenty. Uh, I just noticed I've got uh, uh, a typo here, um, the uh, name and address of the sponsor. So, and this is just laid out. So if you, you can go search the regulations available online. Um, I used to have a set of these books, uh, you yeah. know, on a, on a, on a, bookshelf behind yeah. me, you know, um, I, I, don't know, I don't know what, what, what your experience is with this. I used to print a new set of yeah. them every year. Um, but you can just go online actually and, and, and search for this. If you search that, you know that text, it'll it should pop it up, uh, and, and you can look at the detail. And, and it's actually linked in some of the you know some of the links. I, I, I think we'll go ahead and uh, and get to people. Uh, but it lays out twelve items that, that that need to be included. And this is the name and address of the sponsor, a report of prior investigations, and the current investigational plan, a description of manufacturing, processing, packing, and, and storage of the device an example of the investigator agreement and a list of, of people who signed it or, um, uh, well, a, a list of investigators who've already signed it actually in terms of the submission. Then you need a certification that all investigators who participate in the investigation have or uh, signed it already or anybody who joins the study will sign it. Uh, and then you need a list of the name, address, and chairperson of each IRB that you're engaging with, a list of the participating institutions, If you're selling a device, the amount that you're charging for it, as well as an explanation of why that doesn't constitute commercialization. That's an important piece of information you're going to want to include there. Um, You're also going to need either an environmental assessment or an exclusion. In my experience, usually you can explain why uh, you you, you qualify for an exclusion, but there might be cases where you would have to do an assessment. Uh, You need to include the labeling and you also need to inc- include information that you're going to give to the subjects in the study, as well as the informed consent uh, uh, documentation, and then any additional uh, information as requested by FDA. And that last bit is really going to be uh, maybe device-specific or in response to an inquiry from FDA mm-hmm. uh, as, as, as you go through. So it's not something necessarily that you provide up front to them. So that lays out the overall um you know landscape of what you need to give them and then within 30 days after you submit this fda is going to come back to you and give you a decision either that your study is uh, approved that your study is that, that your study is approved with conditions or that your study is disapproved and they might include some additional elements that you don't have to respond to around study design considerations and, and future considerations uh, and a lot of this is laid out in in some of what FDA has put together on their on their website. Yeah. So a lot of really yeah. good resources there.
1: And and I don't this may be myth. I can't remember. Remember, right? I I seem to remember that if you submit an ID submission and you do not hear back from FDA in 30 days, that that constitutes de facto approval. Is that still a thing, or was that ever a thing? Do you know? Uh I mean, I'm guessing today we're technically
0: always... technically it is a thing. FDA I advise, works, would you advise people to, to do that? I wouldn't advise you. I mean technically, you would be within your legal rights to to do so in certain circumstances. I mean FDAs also like sent they they've sent people letters in in, in in some instances when they're getting submissions in and there's some kind of a delay in um, uh, either the government being closed or there okay. was a massive snowstorm and they were sending out updates to people you know, around IDEs and and, and things like this. I mean, I would generally advise you not to just start your study. I mean, technically you, you could, um, but FDA is, it goes out of their way to meet this, this 30 day, day deadline. And they're aware that if they don't, you just from a statutory standpoint, you could just start your study, which is one of the reasons that they Will give you an answer within thirty days. Expect that by midnight on day thirty, yeah, you will right. get an answer. Right. I, there are very rare circumstances where that's where that's not the case. So I right. I, I wouldn't get an itchy trigger finger to to to, to move forward without a without an, a letter from FDA because one is coming.
1: <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. So David, uh, I guess to wrap up this this kind of high level conversation on IDE, might be good to just give people sort of a. A typical timeline, you know, how to kind of flow through this. Not that this is, you know, etched in some stone by any stretch, but the timing of events. We've talked about Q subs. We've talked about the contents of IDs. We've talked about scenarios, when and IRBs and NSRs and SRs and that sort of thing. But maybe uh, help people navigate that this process a little bit more succinctly.
0: Yeah, and, and just before I forget, because because uh, I will otherwise, um, yeah. when we think about uh, disapprovals. FDA is only going to be able to disapprove your study based on patient safety considerations. So back before 2012, FDA would oftentimes disapprove studies based on uh, study design uh, issues or issues that they believed were going to affect your ability to commercialize the device and get a marketing uh, submission through in the future. Uh, But uh, Congress put a stop to that. And so FDA is only able to disapprove you based on Patient safety con- consideration. So keep that in mind, and that's why, I mean, the, the current letters that FDA sends out are a, um, a lot more complicated than they used to be in terms of, of legal where <laughs> where different information falls, and they give you extra information and additional sections that aren't really part of the letter. And anyway, so so that, that's part of part of why is that they will approve the study even if they have concerns with it. They'll let you know what those concerns are. But that doesn't preclude you from starting uh, from starting the study. It, it just it might preclude you from getting the device on the market on the back end, which means for all intents and purposes,
1: you're kind of wasting everybody's time. You, you, right? yeah.
0: you, you know, even if you get an approval, if you get a bunch of study design considerations, you're probably waiting to start the study until you resolve those. Yeah. In most cases, okay. Um, but in terms of timeline, so so to get get back to your actual question. <laughs> um, uh, you, you're, you're gonna generally want to go in with a pre-sub or a Q-sub, as we've talked about, to FDA, and uh, just put this put put this in front of them. Uh, get them, a, you know, a picture of uh, of the device and a little bit of detail about what you're you know looking to looking to study. So if you know that you're headed down that route earlier on in the process, it, it usually takes about seventy days. Uh, maybe let's call it sixty days from when it's received by FDA for you to get a a meeting on. I generally recommend that you know try to schedule a meeting with FDA. Try to have an actual teleconference with them, or you know an in person meeting if we get back to doing that. Uh, you know again here in the future, and um, and and just have an opportunity to. Talk through what it is that your plans are for development. What it is that your plans are for, let's say, a study and any protocol questions you might have. Because this is the opportunity that FDA is going to going have to give you their input, their feedback, and and you can hopefully head off any major um, you know issues or you know or concerns uh, that um, you know that might come up.
1: So, um, uh, before we we kind of move to that next major chunk from a timeline perspective. How early is too early to do a, a pre-submission? I, I'll cram two parts into this question. And is my Q submission? Is there a difference between a five ten k Q submission and an IDE Q submission, or can these sort of all be blended together?
0: You can you can kind of blend some of this stuff together. I would generally try to <clears throat> try to separate it out um, to some extent. I mean, y- y- you can ask questions about the study and questions about the device or questions about the you know, sort of the, um, you know, your planned, you know, approach to, to commercializing the product within, within one, you know, Q sub. Um, it, it, kind of depends on, on, on where you're at in your timeline. I generally recommend there's not really a too early time. As long as you've got some information, I generally recommend pictures. See if you can get pictures, maybe even samples of, of prototypes or something in front of FDA. I mean, that kind of stuff. Um, if you're able to, you know, to to get that to them can be, and, and as long as you're not creating some hazard because you've got sharps or right. you know some some issue, you're sending right. the needles, you know. Um, but you know, if you can get something, uh, you know, a sample of uh, you know, of some mechanism of the you know the product, or um, at least getting some diagrams and pictures, and if you can try to use try to use color. I mean, just little things about. It, it's less about. I mean, you're telling um, a story
1: in a yeah. I mean, so absolutely. I mean, who wants to watch a boring story or listen to a boring story? Spice it up a little. I mean, be factual, but tell a story that's compelling.
0: Yeah. And, and, and some of it is try to tell the, you know, the human interest side of it to, you know, to some extent. Cause while FDA doesn't consider that, let's say formally, um, look, I mean, we're, we're all human. And so if, if you can tell a compelling story about why you're doing what you're doing, you can you can really get some 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 advocates on your side within FDA sure. to help you to help you drive things forward and and uh, they're going to be more inclined to spend more time and effort getting you good advice and 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 good information and they're going to be doing that in, in any case but it it it's going to help you um, you know I think if you can tell a compelling story so For definitely sure. yeah that storytelling aspect is a big piece of this pre sub you know Q sub interaction and I would also suggest as I have it, you know, uh, before that you find an image or you find a, um, uh, a diagram or something that is going to remain consistent as best you can imagine into the future that you can reproduce every time you put something in front yep. of FDA, because it, it, it's something for them to latch on to because they see so many of these submissions that if you can give them a, you know, a, a point you know, of reference,
1: like the brand, so to speak, right? Yep.
0: Exactly. And 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 then you know, all of a sudden it's like, oh, I remember this this product. And it'll it'll help smooth things along if there are people who've already been involved in previous interactions, especially because for some of these, you might have a pre-submission interaction with FDA years before yeah. you actually start the, the the IDE study. I mean, hopefully you can move things along faster than that, but knowing how this sometimes goes, for sure. various reasons you get derailed or a- anyway, top, so
1: slow, pivot, whatever the case may be. Yeah. The, the, I mean, I think that's, that's not quite a given necessarily, but, but it's probably more common than not that time between your pre-sub and time between your actual IDE is going to be a while. Even if, yep. I mean, even for me, something I did yesterday, if I have to sometimes go to my calendar and like, what did I do? So, uh, <laughs> did I take notes on this meeting? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So pre-sub and then time passes and then what happens
0: so then you get to your actual original IDE submission,
1: and, and
0: you might even get to a point where you do a follow-on pre-submission. So it depends on maybe what's happened. Usually you want to interact with FDA and, and figure out what you're doing in your preclinical work because there's certain bench data and maybe animal testing you're going to need before you go into human subjects, and FDA can help you work that sort of plan out. And based on what, what happens, usually it doesn't go quite to plan. Um, in my experience I mean maybe there are some people out there that they planned it out and it went exactly as they thought it would. go ahead just submit just submit the IDE but uh, you know potentially do a, do a follow-on you know queue submission interaction just ahead of doing doing an IDE. make sure you you build it into your plan maybe a couple months ahead of doing the, the yeah. formal IDE submission just to iron out any, Additional questions you might have now that you've got all your data, you're working on assembling the package, but you have a little bit of time where you can get some information to FDA before you have everything really ready in terms of the protocol. You're lining up your study sites, um, you're doing a lot of this work in you know in uh, in in the, in the background. Do an interaction with FDA and then get this formal original IDE. Uh, study submitted. And that's going to need all these pieces that we talked about. That's going to need your investigational protocol, some details on on the device description as part of that. You're going to need details on your manufacturing. And um, you, you're going to need the information that you're going to be presenting to your um, to your study subjects and your informed consent. And anticipate as FDA goes through, like, I don't know, usually dozens, if not hundreds of pages, usually... Hundreds of pages yeah, in in a sure. submission like this, they're probably going to come back with changes. So uh, be careful about going to the presses with a bunch of let's say physical yeah. printed you know documents and things. If you can hold hold back, uh, you can do some stuff printing at you know printing at risk. But just anticipate you might have to reprint you know sections of this after FDA. Um, yeah reviews it and ask you to change a bunch of stuff.
1: Yeah. in those scenarios, I mean, especially those early stages, I highly recommend the print on demand, uh, type of situation. And it doesn't have to be a nice trifold glossy sort of thing. I mean, it can be eight and a half by 11 and this type of scenario, it's more about the content, but there will be changes to that. I mean, I, I almost, you know, would, would guarantee that.
0: It's almost time. a certainty that something will change, but yeah. yeah. Okay. And then, um, uh, and then, and then FDA, within 30 days of that, <clears> then <throat> expect, so the timing of your submission matters. So I, I would generally recommend avoid Thanksgiving, <laughs> avoid Christmas, yeah. you know, avoid, um, I don't know, if you know the government is shutting down, like, you know, just <laughs> see, see if you can avoid some of these kinds of things. Because the the longer F- F- FDA has to review your submission, the more likely you are to have some interactive Right. Uh, back and forth and successfully get to an approval without FDA putting your, uh, basically your study on hold with a disapproval letter or an approval with conditions that has right. conditions that you, you basically mean you're not starting the study. So, right. um, tr- you know, the timing of the submission matters. It shouldn't, I, I appreciate that, but just it practically it does because if, FDA will get you an answer within 30 days, but if they have less time, that means they're going to more, li- more likely have questions that make it to you in their formal letter than if they've got a little bit more time. Maybe they can have a couple more interactive back and forths, resolve some issues, even if the letter you get is smaller. I mean, that's, that's, I see that as a win in many cases wow. just to reduce the, the, the number of questions.
1: And and I think another thing that hopefully this is obvious, but if you're going to submit information to FDA, that's not the time for you now to go on vacation for a couple of weeks and be unavailable. <laughs> you,
0: you need to be available. Well, you, you might be able to you might be able to submit it and go on vacation for a week. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I uh, I, I, w- I would I would try to do it, do it the second week, you know, submit yeah. it, make sure it actually makes it in then take off for a week, but then be right. back for those last two weeks. Right. <laughs> and even then, your, your point is 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 well taken. It's like, it, definitely in those last two weeks and probably the, the full 30 days, FDA might be reaching out to you for stuff. And if you can quickly turn it around and get something to them in a timely way, you're going to improve yeah. the odds that you get your submission uh, through as an approved IDE. Sure. All
1: right. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> what are the last... Point. <laughs> what are the the last um, couple of steps that come to mind as far as the uh, IDE process? Yeah, so
0: so the, so the next piece here is you're going to get a, a formal letter from FDA, and it, sure. it's going to be sent by email. You're going to get you know to, to your submission correspondent get get details on um, you know what what FDA's concerns are if they have them or that you're approved or approved with conditions, probably. There are items that FDA is going to want you to address. In most cases, you're almost never going to get a clean approval. Now, you might get a clean approval with future considerations, things for you to think about. Uh, maybe they flag that you need some additional testing endpoints for your actual, you know, marketing submission. But usually, you're then going to be in a position, uh, maybe 50 percent of the time. And, and I, I haven't actually looked at the 2020 numbers. FDA publishes numbers on how many. Um, uh, submissions they approve just outright. How many you know get get an approval with conditions, and how many are disapproved? And and sort of the the, the number of iterations and how that overall landscape looks for all of their IDEs. Um, but uh, in, in a number of cases, you're going to have an amendment. So uh, you're you're disapproved. Let's 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 say 25 percent of the time you get disapproved. Um, something in, in, in that ballpark it might be might be higher, might be lower, depending on the device type um but in in some in in some of the cases fda is going to disapprove the study you're going to have to come back with an amendment additional information to to address um to address fda's concerns if you get an approval that follow-up is going to be a supplement potentially to address their um you know their 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 concerns and then you're going to get into uh and, and this is probably happening in parallel where you're enrolling your sites, you're identifying your investigators, doing all this work. Some of that you can be doing before you get the, the approval. It's just whatever you already have assembled on that you would submit to FDA, but you don't actually have to have any sites enrolled when you submit your, your study to FDA. Mm -hmm. It would be, you know, but Oftentimes you will. So you could submit it without any sites enrolled, you could submit it with some, but not all of your sites enrolled, and you'll be following up with additional information, you know, in, in, in the future. So that whole bit around enrollment of you know of sites and at least getting them ready, even though you can't initiate the investigation yet, getting all that lined up and ready can be can be going on in parallel. Yeah. And for sure. one of the biggest time frames that you're gonna run into are actually issues around the, the IRB uh schedules and getting yeah. on there. Uh, I, I think about it as a docket, you know, for, 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 for review, but, um, that's going to be one of the biggest challenges that you're going to have is, is less actually your interactions with FDA from talking sure. with a lot of people running clinical studies, your, your bigger hurdles actually with the IRBs and, and getting, you know, getting through that piece of it. So, um, and
1: I, FDA can I can a can add a couple course. things to there? Yeah. yeah. please. Um, yeah, my experience, even, you know, the lead up to all of this, you, you it seems like you have sites that are engaged, it sounds like, or you, you get this impression or this feeling that enrollment is gonna be a breeze once you get going. Um, that's rarely the case. Uh, so yeah. uh, enrollment's probably gonna slow, go slower than you think, and, and the, the site engagement and, and getting them onboarded and active is probably going to be a little bit more challenging than you think too, even if they are experienced yeah. with doing these sorts of things.
0: Yeah. And the more you can get lined up, I mean, some of it is you don't, you don't want to enroll, let's say sites too far ahead of enrolling patients because then maybe they lose interest yeah. and, and all this. But if, if you can get some of that lined up and, and then you can be doing your, your submission to FDA. And then in most cases, you're going to get an approval, you know, fa- fairly early on in, in, you know, in that whole process, but you're going to want to build in a buffer of time where you can address study design considerations and these kinds of things and then tweak any of the documentation you need to engage with the, with the sites on and update your, your, your procedures and processes and maybe your um, you know, exclusion you know, criteria for subjects and these kinds of things if, if FDA has some, you know, some um, you know, comments around all that. You you have a lot of work in let's say getting to initiating the study at that point, and some of that engagement with FDA is probably happening simultaneously. Sure. And then you get to a point where six months after your approval, you then have to start submitting reports to to, to FDA about your uh, in investigator list. Right, now right. you can get a waiver from uh, from FDA for for uh, certain you know details in terms of notifying them when you add a. Uh, a site, uh, but then you have to let them know once you've enrolled all of your sites. So there are certain things that you, you can build into your, your your submission to reduce some of the burden and reporting on the back end. But it's it's going to be tedious. Just expect running an IDE study is going to be tedious and a lot of paperwork. And you really want you really want to have somebody involved in that who who knows.
1: What yeah, I think that that's an important thing about this. Is it's not like you get the the permission to do so and then it's like see you later. I yeah. mean there's still culpability or or responsibility to have that, that back and forth, uh, dialogue or communication with FDA. Um, you know, so I I think that's really key. I think a lot of times people forget about that.
0: Yeah. And and you're going to have to then, if you change the device, if you change your protocol, you're going to need to submit a supplement. You're also going to need to provide reports on on annual progress. So every 12 months you're going to need to give FDA an update you're also going to need to identify, um, you know, any unanticipated adverse events in a report to FDA. Depending on how serious uh, that is, you know, you've got different, you know, reporting, uh, you know, expectations around, uh, you know, the, you know, the timelines for, you know, for this. And and then you're going to be uh, uh, providing investigator lists, and eventually you're going to get to the stage where you're done with the study, and you're going to submit a final report. But I would caution you. Um, be careful about closing out your IDE study too early. Um, usually it it, it depends. Sometimes you might close your IDE study and then do your marketing submission. Oftentimes you might want to keep the investigational device exemption study open and continue your follow-up while your marketing submission goes into FDA, because sometimes they might come back and say, you know, we really want five more subjects.
1: Or something like this. No, that's a really good point. Too. I've, I, I, uh, it's been a day or two, but I remember scenarios. And then if you close it, now nah, you gotta go back. Uh, you gotta
0: go back to the drawing board. It, it, it's, a, it's a lot easier if you've got the study still open, you know, still active. You haven't yet submitted your final report. I've seen situations when I was at FDA where we would review the information from the IDE in the marketing submission. Before we actually reviewed the final report, and then the final report closeout was was basically just a formality because we'd already reviewed all the information as mm-hmm. part of the marketing submission. Uh, you know, you you can go either way, and and there might be some device groups at FDA that want to see it one way or the other, or they might take issue with that. But it it, it does, especially if there's any possibility that FDA is going to want you to go collect more clinical data, or they're not happy with the number of subjects. It's a lot easier to modify an existing. Approved study than to open sure. a new one, even even though practically it should it should be you know sort of a comparable level of effort. You've already got the documentation, but just logistically, it's a lot more complicated.
1: For sure. All right. Anything else that's important about the the IDE timeline and, and process before uh, we? I I think that mostly that mostly covers it. I mean, the the regulation
0: suggests that within three months after termination. Uh, you know of your study that you need to be submitting that you know final IDE report. So think about that in terms of how you're structuring your you know your study and and how you're thinking about definitions of what you know termination or completion of the investigation actually looks like. Where maybe you know see if you can get yourself some flexibility on that sort of termination completion, yeah. and then you know you For can sure. put a delay. Let's say the um, you know the closure and final IDE report to. FDA and the IRBs that that mostly covers it. I think in terms of timelines and, okay. and content, it's a lot of information.
1: There's a the time um,
0: you, you you could spend days probably uh, reading documents and watching videos, uh, and, and that's assuming that you know what you're looking at. <laughs>
1: you know, <laughs> to begin with. Uh, uh, it's so true. I mean, and, and I, I liked your point earlier when I was mentioning Greenlight Academy, and and I'll I'll talk to you uh, after the episode. Maybe we can figure out a um, a couple of different learning paths that we can put out there. Uh, but maybe we can explore that because I think to your point, I mean, there is a, a large quantity and volume of information, but, you know, just figuring out which parts and pieces of that and how to navigate that. I mean, you and I know what we're looking for when we go to what, the yeah. FDA website. If you're a layperson. Good luck. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> but call, call Mr. Regulatory. Uh, go to Mr. Regulatory.com. <laughs> David Pudwell, thank you so much for uh, being the guest and talking about uh, IDE today. Uh, we'll have you back to talk about something else regulatory related here real soon. So thank you so much. And
0: Thank you. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And folks, again, MrRegulatory.com, MRRegulatory.com. Go to YouTube, watch the videos, MrRegulatory, amazing stuff, really helpful uh, to learn more about the Novos and PMAs and IDEs and, and all those sorts of things and more. Uh, check it out. And again, Greenlight Guru, we're here to help you with your medical device quality needs, helping you through design controls, risk, managing your documents and records and all those quality events that happen, such as complaints and campus. Go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more about the Greenlight Guru medical device success platform. Love to have a conversation, understand your needs and requirements and see if there might be an opportunity to help you. As always, thank you so much for Uh, listening to and and now watching the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.